Yes, Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Thank you, Jenny. Well, as um, Mick said, we uh, have started a new series in the uh, book of Mark. And we'll be working through Mark's Gospel throughout this term and and, uh, early into term two, uh, just leading up to our performance of the Mark drama as part of our our outreach plans for this this year. And uh, this is a great opportunity to um, to better understand, to be reminded and refreshed by who Jesus is. Um, So will you pray with me now that uh, that God would uh, indeed work in us to that end? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in Mark's Gospel 
we ask that you would give us a clear picture of the Lord Jesus and what it means to follow him. And we ask in his name. Amen. Show of hands, if I was to call you a wowser, who knows what it is that I'd be accusing you of being? A few people do. People aren't, yep. Um, Wowsers, it's a great word. It's um, one of uh, Australia's great contribution to the English language. Um, it first appeared in an English journal in um, 1899. And maybe it's kind of falling out of, falling out of, out of usage, um, but it is, it is a great word. Here's a definition of uh, someone who is a wowser. A wowser is someone who condemns or seeks to curtail the pleasures of others or who, who works to have his or her own rigid morality enforced on all. It's someone who starts, tries to stop people from doing things they enjoy, kind of in the name of morality. We might say they're someone who's a killjoy, who's a moralist, a legalist. Now, historically, it was connected with the, the temperance movement, which is in Australia, the push to reduce and ultimately to ban alcohol consumption. Uh, and there's some suggestion that maybe it was an acronym, we only want social evils remedied, wowza. Uh, or maybe that was just kind of applied retrospectively or something. Um, my question this morning is, are Christians wowzers? See, many people think, uh, they think of, of Christians along these lines, that they're you know, a bunch of people who follow rules and regulations and, and maybe are, are fairly miserable about doing so and, and, and usually fairly vocal that others should do likewise, that, that they too should be miserably following their rules. And that's what some people think Christianity is about and they set about trying to embrace that and, and live that out. And, or others think that that's what Christianity is about and, and they draw back, they reject it, they say, I don't want to be part of that, I don't want to be a killjoy, do-gooder, moralistic wowser what about us in practice do we see the christian faith as a bunch of rules that we need to keep things we should do things we shouldn't do things we should tell others to do and to not do are we kind of in effect are we wowsers or on the other hand, maybe we're not wowsers and we're really keen not to become one and, or not to be seen as a wowser. So we kind of hold back and we're a little bit wary of because, you know, we have this sneaking suspicion that actually proper Christians are actually wowsers. I mean, they're, they're really disciplined and they, they're really committed. They do lots of stuff. I mean, they go to church twice on a Sunday and they belong to three growth groups and they get up early every morning to pray. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't drive fast. Their, their name is on the church roster 47 times and they're committed. They do lots of good stuff. They're serious Christians and maybe we're just a bit wary of that. We, don't, we, we fear taking things too seriously in case we become a, a wowser. Underneath all of this is the belief, the suspicion, the, the fear that maybe Jesus is actually a wowser. And so if I'm into Jesus, well, I'll become a wowser too. Well, as I hope we'll see in this passage before us this morning, Jesus is not a wowser. In fact, he is the opposite of a wowser. In fact, he went toe-to-toe with people who, who we might say were wowsers, and he showed up the, the emptiness of their legalistic rule keeping and in doing that he actually shows us a a far better way a way of life a way of joy 
And that's what I want us to see this morning. Um, the wowsers I'm talking about in this passage are the Pharisees. They were big on keeping rules. They were big on seeking to, to live righteously and criticizing others who didn't. Um, now, if you read your Gospels, you, you know that the, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, they're the, they're the bad guys, right? They're, they're the ones that, you know, if, if it was being made into a movie, there'd be kind of ominous music or a bad camera angle when the Pharisees appear. That's, that's kind of how we typically see the Pharisees. But actually, we need to realize in their own time and culture, they, they were respectable. They were law-abiding people. They, they strive to live rightly according to the law. They, they were prepared to stand out and be different. From, from others, they were respectable, upright members and leaders in their community. But they were, in fact, wowsers, which is why they had trouble with Jesus. Uh, we pick up the, uh, the account in Mark 2, verse 13. Look there with me in your Bibles. Um, I should have said you, you, you need your Bibles open so you can follow along. Uh, 2.13 says, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, the sea, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So here we have again Jesus by the sea calling someone to follow him. He calls Levi. It's very similar to the calling of uh, uh, Simon and Andrew back in chapter 1. Uh, follows the same summary, who he was, what he was doing, what Jesus said, how he responded. It's very similar. But there's one significant difference. Levi, unlike Simon and, and uh, Andrew, he wasn't a fisherman. He was a tax collector. Now, I think it's hard for us to, to appreciate the shock of that statement, that Jesus called a tax collector to follow him. Uh, at this time, Israel was under Roman rule, and uh, the tax collectors were working for the Romans. They collected money from their own people and passed it on to the Romans. They were working for the enemy. Worse than that, many tax collectors were corrupt. They collected more money than they, they needed to in order to keep some of it themselves, to enrich themselves. Tax collectors, consequently, were greatly despised. And furthermore, because of their association with the Romans, who were Gentiles, non-Jews, the, these tax collectors were regarded as, as unclean. They were, they were outcasts in their society. And so Jesus here calls Levi, uh, an unclean, despised outcast, to follow him. He's not the kind of expected choice for followers of Jesus. But it gets worse, or, or better, depending on your perspective. We then read that Jesus is at a party at Levi's house, hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and so-called sinners. Now, unsurprisingly, the, the Pharisees, they see this. Remember, they're the good, upright, respectable citizens. They have an issue with this. Verse 16, verse 16 when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing, Jesus? Now, in the Pharisees' mind, there were, there's two types of people. There's the righteous, people like them, and there's the sinners, other lesser people who don't have the, the time or desire or, or aspiration to live like them according to the standard, their standard of righteousness. These two types of people, why does Jesus associate with, with sinners? Jesus hears this in verse 17 says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
And Jesus there uses, uses what I think is their labels of righteous and sinners. And he says, well, I'm for the sinners. He didn't come to hang out with clean-cut, respectable, self-righteous churchgoers who act like they have it all together. He came to hang out with sinners. Not because he was a sinner or because he endorsed their sin, not at all. But because they're the ones that he needed, that, sorry, that needed his help. He didn't come to, to pander to the hypocrisy of self-righteous wowsers. He came to call and save sinners, to heal them of the sickness of their sin. He came to heal us of the sickness of, of our sin. And friends, this is wonderful news. I don't know how uh, conscious of your own sin you are. Maybe you're, you're weighed down by it. Maybe you feel you've got that burden on your shoulders. Maybe you're very aware of your failure, your weakness, and maybe you don't see yourself like in the shoes of these self-righteous Pharisees. Maybe you're more like Levi the tax collector or one of the other sinners at the edge of this party in Levi's house. And If that's you, don't think that you need to somehow become a Pharisee. Don't think you need to, to somehow clean up your act and kind of Get your act together before Jesus will pay attention to you as if you are somehow too sinful for Jesus. No one is too sinful to be saved by Jesus. Jesus came, as he says, to save sinners like you, like me. That's good news. I've not come to call the righteous, the so-called righteous, but sinners. Round one of this uh, conflict with the Pharisee, that's round one, but it doesn't stop there. In fact, it kind of builds from there. We read on verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, what's this this fasting about? A bit of background. It it seems that the, the Pharisees often fasted. That is, they denied themselves food for a period of time. Uh, It was a a ritual as part of their kind of life of of, uh, piety, an expression of of commitment, of discipline. They'd they'd even deny themselves food. Uh, You see an example of it in uh, Luke 18. Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And uh, Luke records there, um, Luke 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Notice there this, uh, this Pharisee's fasting is twice a week. It's, a, it's evidence of his pious, seemingly righteous behavior, which it seems fasting had become by the time of the Pharisees. That's very different from the, uh, the fasting that we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, fasting is, is about mourning. It's about grief. An example of this is 2 Samuel 1 in response to the, the news of the death of, of Saul and Jonathan. It says, uh, David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening. For Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Notice there, fasting is connected with 
with mourning. It kind of makes sense. And if you're overcome with grief, often you, you don't feel like eating. But in the Old Testament, it's also often connected with mourning, particularly for, for sin and with repenting of sin. Numerous examples, I don't have time to go through, but uh, King Ahab in 1 Kings 21, or Nehemiah, the Israelites in Nehemiah uh, 1 and, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 9. Another interesting example is in Isaiah 58, where God warns that fasting must not be just an empty ritual. It must be a sign of genuine repentance, of, of a change of behavior, which I think shows the irony of what it had become for the Pharisees as this sort of badge of their righteous piety. So fasting in the Old Testament is about mourning, it's about grief and repentance, which is why Jesus responds to their question the way he does. See there, verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Jesus said, now's not the time for mourning and fasting. Now's the time to party, to celebrate, to rejoice. This is the, the wedding banquet and Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. I mean, can you imagine going to a wedding reception and discovering that it had been decided that actually during the reception we're all going to fast? It'd be ridiculous. It'd be concerning somewhat. Um, it'd be an outrage. It just wouldn't make sense. Now's the time to party, says Jesus. To celebrate, rejoice, Jesus is here. But then notice Jesus says there will be a time for mourning and fasting. Jesus, he looks ahead, he prophesies, verse 20, he says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. The time will come when mourning, fasting will be, when Jesus the bridegroom is taken away. Then it'll be time to fast. He's speaking of his death. That's the time for grief. Just as an aside, um, how should we think about fasting? Uh, some Christians place a big emphasis on this uh, or just assume that it's something Christians should do. Uh, for some, it's got to do with a, a self-denial, maybe a way of, of focusing on God, uh, being disciplined to pray. I've heard it said it's, it's about giving time. So instead of spending time eating, you spend time uh, praying. Just pragmatically, I'm not, I'm not sure that going without food is particularly helpful for focusing on God or praying. Um, I tend to concentrate better if I'm not hungry. But some people might find a practical benefit in it, and that's, that's okay. But I think we need to be careful in our thinking. Because we mustn't think that, that fasting can bring us closer to God. Unless, of course, the old joke that if you fast long enough, you'll actually meet God. But, um, but it won't actually change our relationship to bring us closer to God. It might affect our perceptions, but it won't change our standing before God. It's not like God says, oh, look, there's Jono. He's been miserable and gone without food for six hours. I'm going to reward him for his self-imposed suffering. Six hours is a long time to go without um, God doesn't work like that. Our standing with God doesn't depend on our efforts at self-denial. Our standing before God depends solely on Jesus' death in our place, that he dealt with our sin by dying for us in our place once for all so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be brought into relationship with God. If our trust is in him, 
we're secure in right relationship with God. We can rest in that. We don't need to, to win God's favour or try to manipulate his favour with our pious efforts. Now, there may be some personal value in fasting. Some of you may have, have found that. Uh, if it helps to give you time or a physical reminder to pray or something, that's fine. But we mustn't take our practice and read it back into the Bible and say, well, that's what the Bible endorses and says we should do. Our fasting may have little or nothing to do with what the Bible says about fasting. Biblical fasting is about mourning. It's about grief over sin. And there may be a real place for doing that. By all means, fast and mourn and grieve over your sin. But more than that, bring your sin, bring yourself to Jesus, to the great doctor who heals sinners and then invites them. He invites them not to fast but to feast with him in celebration and rejoicing. Now is the time not for fasting but for feasting with the bridegroom because a new day has come. Jesus brings something completely new and you can't mix the new with the old which is what he goes on to say next. In see verse 21, Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth, it's a new, new cloth, onto an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus is saying that he brings a, a new way of righteousness, of, of healing, of life, of, king, of the kingdom of God. And you, you can't mix that with the, the Pharisees' rigid, self-righteous rule-keeping. The, the new doesn't mix with the old. This new way, uh, now, now this continued to ruffle feathers. We read on verse 23, on uh, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, what's the problem here? It's, it's not that the disciples were, um, were pinching someone else's grain. Um, in fact, Deuteronomy 23, 25, under the Old Testament law, it says, uh, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. It kind of makes sense. It's not stealing if you, think, you know, pinch a, a, a mouthful of kernels, but it's, um, you know, don't get out your sickle and start harvesting his grain. Um, so the problem is not that they're helping themselves to the, their neighbor's, uh, someone else's grain. The problem for the Pharisees was that they did this on the Sabbath, on the day of rest. The day that the Israelites were to, to rest and were to not work. And that's uh, throughout the Old Testament law. For example, um, Exodus 31, 20, uh, 34 verse 21 says, Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. So you can't harvest on the Sabbath. You're meant to be resting. So were the disciples harvesting by picking a few heads of grain? Well, this is where the Pharisees' legalism takes over. Because in their, their eagerness to, to keep the law, they, they'd extended the law by coming up with 39 different types of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath, and that included reaping. And so Jesus and his disciples, well, in them, they're stepping outside of the Pharisee system. They're bursting the old wineskins. And so they accuse Jesus. They accuse his disciples of breaking the law. And so Jesus replies by 
We're really about questioning their whole overly, overly tight view of the law. And he refers them back to King David and his companions in a desperate situation as they fled from the murderous Saul and they ate consecrated bread even though it was only the priests were supposed to eat it. Now Jesus isn't saying, oh, the law doesn't matter, go ahead, break it, David did. He's, he's not saying that. What he's pointing out is their overly tight observance of the letter of the law that is actually losing sight of the, the spirit of the law which is exactly what they were doing with the Sabbath, with their 39 different types of work. Jesus says, he puts his finger on it, verse 27, he he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is, the Sabbath laws were given as a a good thing, as as an opportunity for rest, for enjoyment, relaxation. It's not meant to be some sort of onerous burden that you must miserably serve. The Sabbath should serve you and your good rather than you serving it. But notice here also just how full-on Jesus is with the Pharisees. When he says to them, have you never read what David did? I mean, that's pretty direct. Don't you know your Bible? Kind of like saying to a math teacher, don't you understand addition and subtraction? It's pretty direct. What's more, they would have known the story of David and how he was being opposed by Saul Saul, who was supposed to be leading Israel, but had turned from God and was doing his own thing. And Saul, who was trying to kill David, the one who was God's chosen king. Jesus reminds him of this incident and he's paralleling himself and his men with David and his men. And who's Saul in the parallel? Oh, wait, that's you guys. Who's opposing God's chosen king and trying to have him killed? Jesus is confronting And then just in case he hadn't got up their noses enough, he makes this profound claim, verse 28. So the Son of Man, that's why he's speaking of himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is bigger than their petty Sabbath rules. He is Lord even of the Sabbath. I think he's saying even more than that, but we'll come back to that in a minute because this conflict over the Sabbath continues. Next verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. They want a reason to accuse Jesus. If he heals this man, that's work. According to their 39 different categories of work, he can't heal on the Sabbath. The trap is set. What does Jesus do? Masterfully, verse 3, Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? He says, you want the law? You tell me, what's the law about? Is it about doing good? Is it about doing evil? Is it about saving life? Is it about killing that's the key question. The answer is obvious. But such is their twisted commitment to keeping the rules that in their silence they choose evil. They choose killing on the Sabbath. So we read, but they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Notice then what the Pharisees do. 
the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What did they do on the Sabbath? They're not interested in saving life. They're interested in killing. And who do they plot to kill? None other than the Lord of life. The one who's in charge of the Sabbath. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath more than just as a day of rest each week. The, the, the Sabbath is a, a picture of God's promised rest. It's a picture of the rest that he gave to Israel in the promised land. That was their Sabbath. But it, God promises an even greater rest to his people. An eternal rest in heaven in the new creation. And who's the one who brings that rest? Jesus, the Son of Man, who is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, the one who does good. The one who saves life. On the Sabbath, Jesus, the one who came not to call the self-righteous, but to call sinners. Now, it's interesting in the parallel um, in Matthew's gospel, just before this, this uh, account, Jesus says these words, uh, Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not a wowser. His way is not the way of miserable, restrictive, self-righteous denial. His way is the way of life, of forgiveness, of salvation, of, of rest. He's the one who gives life, who gives real life, the best life. In a world, this world that we live in, which is plagued by the sickness of sin, Jesus gives healing and forgiveness, life. I want to say, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're burdened by your sin, come to Jesus. Rest in him. Rest in him. Following Jesus is not a, it's not a matter of being uptight about keeping a standard of legalistic righteousness. It's about coming to him, being forgiven and joining the party that he brings. That doesn't mean there aren't difficulties. There, there are difficulties. In fact, following Jesus will often lead us into suffering in this world, not away from it. I mean, this world rejected Jesus. It will reject his followers also. There will and are hard times. But following Jesus is following the author of life. The one who came to, to bring life, life to sinners like Levi, life to sinners like you and like me. Jesus calls to sinners, to follow him. That's a radical call. It's a call for everything. It's a call for him to be first in our lives. It is a call to commitment. It is a call to give our all. But it's a call to true life, to life with Jesus, the Lord of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he calls us not to miserable, self-imposed rule-keeping, but to joy, to forgiveness and to life. Please help us to come to Jesus honestly as we are in our sin, in our weakness, not to put on displays of self-righteousness, not to think that we need to impress you, but simply to rest secure in Jesus.
and in the forgiveness and life that he gives. Help us to trust and follow Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen.